We're going to be looking at uh, two passages today, our passage in Galatians 4 uh, as our overall focus, but before that we want to look in Matthew chapter 1, so if you'll turn to Matthew 1. I don't know about you, but I'm very impressed with uh, the youth and their participation, um, watching them with the bells. I know at that age I could not have focused or concentrated as much as they did, and uh, that takes a lot of work and a lot of practice, and we do appreciate them. In Matthew 1, beginning with verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, now in these moments, we would ask that you would help us to focus upon your word. You have much to teach us. You have spoken in the past, but it is for us today as well. And so, will you open our hearts and our minds to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, down through the centuries, there have been (coughs) lots of thoughts and theories about the virgin birth of Jesus. Everything from asserting as one author did, that Jesus is the illegitimate child of a Roman soldier, to some who followed uh, Hugh Schoenfeld, who wrote the Passover plot. 
he viewed Jesus as uh, a master uh, deceiver, conspirator, who thought he could be Messiah, and spent his whole life trying to fulfill prophecy that he saw predicted in the past. He saw Jesus deliberately seeking to fulfill that. He wrote this, There is nothing peculiar about the birth of Jesus. He is not God incarnate, and no virgin mother bore him. The church in its ancient zeal fathered a myth and became bound to its dogma. That's one perspective. One seminary professor, obviously not from any of the seminaries that feed the PCA, (coughs) said basically, it doesn't really matter whether or not the virgin birth is true. If it's true for you in our imagination, then that's good enough. Now those disputes are nothing new. You look back into the New Testament and we see the Pharisees disputing any kind of miraculous birth of Jesus. In John 6, verse 42, it says, They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So the Pharisees are saying, look, we we know that his mom and dad. Why are we to believe that there was any kind of uh, an unusual kind of birth? And even the disciples had their difficulties and sometimes confusion in Matthew 16. Verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So even they had these issues with that. Now, if you look over into church history, you see that Christianity, in essence, went in three major directions. You have uh, uh, Roman Catholicism, you have Protestants, and you have the Eastern Church, sometimes called Eastern Orthodox. And they have some major differences in terms of doctrine, and in particular in terms of the doctrine of Mary and her effect or participation or non-participation in terms of... uh, Uh, worship and in terms of salvation, they have differences in that area. But there is a place that all three of those converge and agree. And that is at the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth important? Well, we're going to look at the scripture, but let's begin with one modern day uh, theologian, uh, Larry King from Larry King Live. Uh, He was asked this question, 
If you could select one person from across history that you would interview, who would that be? He answers it this way, that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. And then there's the inevitable follow-up question. Well, what would you ask him if you got to interview Jesus Christ? What would you ask him? Larry King replied, I'd like to ask him if indeed he was virgin born. Now catch this. The answer to that question would define history for me. He's absolutely right. He is right on whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin defines history. Now, some of you take it for granted. Some of you may take it for granted that it's not true, but it's a nice Christmassy thing that we sing about. We affirm it in the Apostles' Creed every time we say it, and Christians down through the centuries have uh, affirmed it in the Apostles' Creed. We sing about it in Silent Night and some of the other great, wonderful Christmas hymns. But what's at stake if we don't believe it? Really, what difference does it make? Why, of all the miracles of Scripture, has the virgin birth been so attacked by so many? Well, there are at least three things at at stake, and all of them are essential to us. The first thing that's at stake with the doctrine of the virgin birth is the integrity of the Scripture itself. Uh, In Genesis 3, verse 15, in Genesis 3, 15, we read this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, just a reminder of the context of this. What we have here, you have the uh, creation and uh, the creation of, of man and woman and then <coughs> the fall of uh, man and then the curse. After the curse is given, we have this verse. This verse is the first prophecy in the scripture of the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, it's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, means first gospel, first place the good news comes out. Genesis 3.15. And then the rest of the scripture is fulfilling what it talks about in Genesis 3. Now, the Hebrew word uh, translated offspring in the version that I just read to you, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, is uh, uh, the word that can be translated seed. Stay with me here. Because there's something unique about this. This is the only 
uh, place in Scripture where you will see the phrase, her seed. It's always his seed. Everywhere else in the Scripture. But here, in predicting the Messiah, in predicting the birth of Jesus, we see already in in the very first place it is predicted, we see that it's going to be a very unique, absolutely unique birth where somehow this is her seed instead of the male's seed. Now in Isaiah 7, we see as well, verse 14. And by the way, uh, you, you know that I have recently changed to the uh, ESV version of the Scripture, the English Standard Version. But I'm often asked about various versions of the Scripture. And if I don't know anything about a translation, what I will do is I'll say, well, see what Isaiah 7.14 says. This passage that I'm about to read to you. Because from that verse, you can tell the bent of the translators. You can tell if they are coming from a position of unbelief, at least unbelief in terms of the miraculous virgin birth because of the translation. Let me explain. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name (coughs) Emmanuel. So this, this phrase, the virgin shall conceive. In order to change that, some translations will say, if they are coming from that other perspective, it will say a young woman shall conceive. <clears throat> no need for anything miraculous, according to that verse. But that's ignoring several things that indicate that it should be translated uh, virgin. The Hebrew word is Alma. And uh, the word occurs six other times in the Old Testament. In each instance, it's speaking of a virgin. Now, until recent times, both Jewish and Christian scholars always translated the word that way. There's two words in the Hebrew that can be translated virgin. One is uh, this one, and the other is, uh, can refer to a married woman who has, <clears throat> has had sexual relations. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in other words, you had the Old Testament written in Hebrew about uh, 150 B.C. It was translated into Greek. And the Septuagint uh, here at this passage uh, specifically used the Greek word that can only be translated virgin. And then we see in the New Testament in Matthew 
quoting this passage in Matthew 1 that I read earlier. It says, all the, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the quotation from Isaiah. So the New Testament perspective is that it's talking about a virgin. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. So <clears throat> what's at stake here is the integrity of the scripture itself. For someone to say there was no virgin birth or the virgin birth does not matter. You see, they are not just attacking one doctrine that's, that's hard for them to believe. They are attacking the doctrine of the scripture itself. Saying at those points in the scripture, it is simply not true. We say it is true. Secondly, what's at stake is the person of Christ. So you have the integrity of the scripture. And secondly, the person of Christ. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Infinite and an infant. Eternal and yet born of a woman. Almighty, yet nursing at his mother's breast. Supporting the universe, yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms. King of angels, and yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. Wonderful art thou, O Jesus, and that shall be your name forever. You see the miracle of uh, him being the God-man. And here's where it's tied in to the virgin birth. Jesus needed a human parent... Who would that be? The seed of the woman. Remember that. Jesus needed a human parent to relate to us and to represent us for him to be truly and fully human. Galatians 4, born of a woman. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he relates to us in every way because of his full humanity. But Jesus needed a divine parent in order to live a sinless life. That's where he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, Jesus would have truly been a son of Adam in the full sense of bearing the mark of the fall upon him. Hebrews 4 says, yet without sin. Now there's another thing at stake. You have the integrity of Scripture. You have the person of Christ. And the third thing, is our salvation itself. Hebrews 4, verse 16. says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you remember the disciples' answers about who Jesus is? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, (coughs) or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. (coughs) Peter's answer was different. Peter said this in that Matthew 16 passage. He said, uh, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So why was Peter's response so different? Well, it's answered right there. Because the answer to Peter was one that was revealed to his heart from heaven. Flesh and blood could not reach the conclusion that Peter reached about him being the Christ, the Messiah. And flesh and blood cannot reach the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah who was born of a virgin. We just have to know that. That has to be through the gift from God of faith. At some point, we have got to step out and say, you know, virgins don't bear children. But this one did. And we say that by faith. The bottom line is that a decision about the virgin birth is a decision about who you believe Jesus really is. For Jesus to be God, he must be born of God. The divine cannot be born into the world by human processes. And there's no way for him to be God apart from being conceived by God. So where are you on on that question? You could be uh, the, the theorist somehow trying to explain the virgin birth away. maybe the the Pharisee, trying to humanly understand it, which, by the way, you won't, merely from a human perspective. Or you could be like Larry King. You really, really want to know. Because you see how important a question this really is. Now, if you find yourself in any of those categories, I'm glad you're here. And I want to encourage you to keep coming. But know this, God has revealed himself. He is knowable. That's why Jesus was born. That's why he came to this earth, not just to speak of God, but to show God to us. God came near 
and he stayed. And for those of you who do believe, who have taken that step and said, look, I can't, I can't begin to explain the virgin birth, but I do believe it. By faith, I believe God's word here. For you, it should go beyond our salvation to our comfort. Because here it is. If Jesus was born of a virgin and is the son of the living God, then several things are true. One is the scripture itself. And so we can know that when God makes other promises, they're going to come true because he promised that this Messiah would be born of a virgin and he was. And so you can know if, if he made that be true, that his other promises are true as well for us in this life. But secondly, you can also know What is impossible with men is possible with God. Now what's impossible? God becoming man. A baby being born of a virgin. If we can believe that, then we can believe that one can die for many and that a dead man can walk out of a tomb and be resurrected. Those are true. Larry King was right. The virgin birth does define history. Our hope rests on the truth that the son of the living God was born of a virgin. Let's bow together.